Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another Britflix Frightfest preview podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me, please introduce yourself. Hey, it's Kyle Rankin. And what film have we come to talk about, Kyle? Night of the Living Deb. Night of the Living Deb. And what was your role on that movie? I directed and produced, mm-hmm. uh, um, and we'll get into it when we talk about the script, but I also uh, kind of wrote the first 20 pages and then realized I needed a more talented writer to come in and help me. Okay. Um, so kind of germinated the idea, but it was really a guy named Andy Seltzer, a buddy of mine, who, who wrote the script. Brilliant, but no, I look forward to that, to that yeah. aspect of it. Um, and when and where can people see your movie at Frightfest? We, our European premiere is Saturday, August 29th, 11.15 p.m., which I just think is a really fun uh, slot at Fright mm-hmm. Fest. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, now, if, uh, if a film was equal parts of all the elements that might make up a horror film, um, and it was 20% drama, 20% scares, 20% mystery, 20% psychological, 20% gore, and I think I need to add on 120% now and go, <laughs> of your movie and 20% comedy because <laughs> I've realised I've forgotten the horror comedy aspect in my by the way this this equation started off with the first podcast as being if it was 50% scared to 50% gore what would yours be and then each film I've spoken to they've gone well mine's mystery mine's drama mine's this thing. so my right. equation my equations were shocking to start with so just just thinking of those kind of that kind of makeup how would you descri- how would you describe your film in kind of like, in that kind of modular fashion Oh, uh, Stuart, I think I'd have to go, let's say, 60% comedy, 20% romance, actually, um, 10% uh, drama slash mystery, and the remainder is really kind of horror. Um, even though it's a zombie film, it's really, I think on this budget, I was like, you know what, I'm not going to be able to deliver this, sta- this kind of scares that I would like to. And, yeah. Uh, make up these zombies the way I would like to. So I'm really just going to concentrate on good performances and, and some laughs. Cool. Cool. No, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so in, you, you've already alluded to it. So in, in, in the sort of scripting stage, um, what would you, what do, would you, excuse me, put my teeth in. What did you consider to be the sort of hardest challenge to resolve in storytelling terms? Well, I wrote a, I started writing this uh, with a guy in the lead role. And then I said, you know, this is going to be, this is going to be a really 
bad version of, of uh, Shaun of the Dead, which is a movie that I, I really adore. Uh, you know, you can tell even by my title that it's kind of a, I'm kind of aping that, that style yeah. a bit. And I thought, you know, this, in order to just have any legitimacy, this has to be a woman in this, in this lead role. And, uh, and I think I'm not the guy to write that. And that's when I, I pulled in a very funny friend of mine, Andy Seltzer, who I've known for about five years and just always wanted to work with and showed him the first 20 pages and kind of pitched how I see the rest of the movie going. And he, he went away and just wrote a very, very funny script that, uh, you know, made me laugh out loud and made me very excited to to get on set and to find the right people for. How how do you how do you balance that the aspects of being the producer of the movie and being the director of the movie when that script's being developed? Who who do, what dominates the conversation? Do you think? Oh, as it's being um, yeah, you know, uh, maybe it's quite similar. I wouldn't. Uh, um. I guess the producing side of it is just the organizing the meetings between me and Andy because we live about an hour away and then getting together. And then at that point, I would just try and uh, switch hats as much as I could and, and speak from a what I thought was working and wasn't working from a director stage. And okay. uh, I write a bit as well so I could be like, hey, let me take a crack at the scene and uh, and hand it back to you. And um, But it was important. I really wanted Andy to feel empowered and uh, you know to get full credit because he really he deserved it. Um, of course, yeah. And I actually don't, I really don't enjoy writing. I find it a very lonely process. Uh, I can, I can, I can do it, but it's more of a means to an end. Uh, so it was, felt really good to pass the writing to someone more talented and, and to more put energy into directing slash producing. And I do enjoy producing, which is really just kind of, you know, setting up all the dominoes, just lining Ooh. everything up, hiring, uh, finding cast and crew and locations. And I actually, uh, I don't like the minutia of it, like getting down into the contractual phase of, oh, we need a location release or whatever. But I do like going around and uh, introducing myself and telling people what I'm up to and, you know, can is there any way they can give me their restaurant for free or, you know, that kind of thing. But there is but there is the financial aspects, isn't there, of being a producer that maybe, you know, obviously a director doesn't really always want to know about, but obviously has to have in mind. That's what I was thinking with in terms of that that sort of conflict between the two roles. Yeah, and you know what's strange is having done a few studio pictures, um, they don't tell, they they literally just will not show the the director the budget. and <laughs> Really? And they'll say, oh, it's as a way of protecting you. At least that's been my experience. You know, it's a way of protecting you uh, so you can focus on the, and I, I just, I always felt like I had one hand tied behind my back a bit because I never, I, I would see waste, you know, on the set, I'd, I'd I'd pull a producer aside, you know, I don't need that crane until next week. Oh, it's good to have it here. And I'm like, oh, and then I would lose other things, you know, like, hey, <laughs> can I get that thing I asked for? No, man, it's not in the budget. And I just, that that really started to, to gnaw at me. So this is the first time that I kind of put everything together myself. And it was a very enjoyable experience just to know, you know I was I was the one kind of writing the checks and shuffling the money around. And that actually, I think, really helped my process. Yeah, no, because I, I remember reading a story about um, George Romero tying it in with the zombie theme, when he, he made uh, Land of the Dead, and that was a studio pick for him, and I think the one only time he's done it, and he, he vowed never to do it again, because the experience was, he couldn't do any reactive shooting, so say he arrived on set, and there was an opportunity to do something that wasn't necessarily planned, but it would work for the movie, which is kind of how he'd always worked, because what had been signed off by all the execs, about yes. what was to be shot on what day and when, he couldn't do it, and he found that insane. Yeah, it's um, I, I, reactive shooting. I like that uh, because yeah, you want to be able to kind of shuck and jive and 
and uh, oh, look at the sun is setting in that particular exactly. way. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, that is very annoying when you get just someone who's like, no, man, we can't. If we do that, I have to put the crew and turn around. Or, you know, I don't know. It's just uh, I really enjoyed uh, being at the helm of both the, the money and the, and the creative because because it, it freed everything up. Now, now, obviously, because it, the, 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 the finance and time and human resources are finite, what, what when you had that locked script that you went to shoot with, um, what were the aspects of it that seemed the sort of most insurmountable, and, and sort of what were the what were the breaks you got? What were the creative choices you had to make uh, that helped you achieve the film you got? Well, the easiest thing, uh, you know, producing on a small budget is c- tends to be two people sitting and talking in a room, you know, in a, in a yeah, controlled yeah, space. <laughs> then, but then, you know, your next thought is, well, it's not exactly the most uh, engaging, visually appealing thing. So then you want to kind of movies have to, you know, move by their very nature and. So I think I think the most ins- the things that feel insurmountable uh, what I've learned is action because action shooting takes it takes the most amount of time for you know it's almost like animation it takes the most amount of time for the least amount of screen time um, and it's just very it can be costly um, especially if you if you have some stunts and that kind of thing and uh, yeah we had some car work and and some set pieces I guess you'd call them that I was nervous about going in and and sometimes on the day I'd have to be like oh I can't do the five beats of, of comedy action I want to do here, I need to just do three, you know, or, or something like that. Uh, so, yeah, I was I was constantly shaving away due to budget and time, uh, which was too bad, but which was also expected uh, a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so what, um, in terms of uh, what, what, you, what you ended up shooting then um, and, and the, the finished film, what, what do you feel is... Um, what are you most looking forward to in terms of what what the uh, Frightfest crowd are going to get to see with your movie? And like you say, you've got a great slot there, the kind of one that rolls into midnight. Yeah, the thing I'm most excited about, in 2009, I wrote and directed a picture called Infestation, uh, which was a, a studio, like a far bigger budget, um, you know, 20 times the budget of this thing, uh, for Mel Gibson's company, uh, kind of a horror comedy. And it played at Frightfest, but Icon never told me, you know, and I turned. I found out about it later. And then Alan Jones uh, was incredibly sweet in that he kind of he would uh, kind of champion infestation and told other European festivals about it. And then I got a chance to travel a bit. But basically, I just heard from a bunch of people like, "Oh man, you should have been there at the Fright Fest uh, screening. The crowd was so great. They loved it." I'm like, "All right, I'm not. I'm never missing that again." So I'm coming over this year just because. Yeah, I just want to see the crowd react. Um, I think one of, one of the things I'm most proud about. Uh, but I do think maybe takes the edge for off of it for some horror fans. But it's a very positive film. I think it. Le- I wanted to make a film that kind of left people smiling at the end Ooh. and not and not feeling. You know, sometimes my wife or I will put on a kind of a you know a true horror film at like 11 p.m. and it's just it can leave you like oh god what's the point you know and uh, yeah so I just wanted to could I deliver um, comedy a few scares and leave people in general feeling good about life at the end and more positive so. Uh, that was my goal. What would you what do you think's the attraction there with because obviously horror traditionally is a transgressive media is you know is a transgressive genre. Yeah. Um, so what is it you think comedy's adding to that 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 transgression then or 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 take it away maybe what what do you think is is happening there with the mix? I guess I think um I think in real life the mix is so uh close like uh when you when you think about it 
you know, crying, actually sobbing and laughing. It's a very similar uh, reacting uh, reaction. Mm. They're, they're actually, I think in our bodies, the place that makes you huh, like jump from a scare or huh, like, you know, laugh, uh, very similar. And that's why, you know, um, you know, and we've all been in, in places like a church or, or a funeral or a certain event where you should be very uh, austere <laughs> and serious and you can't, you, you want to giggle. You just want to. So I think the, I just think there's uh, something in our lizard brains that are, those things cleave kind of close to each other. So it's, I guess it's fun for me to play in that sandbox uh, a bit. And I also just don't think I'd be, I'd be very good at making a movie that was only uh, very serious or, or horror. Um, I just, I'm not the right person, but I can admire, I can see, you know, certain things that scare the hell out of me that I absolutely adore. Uh, but it's not my, uh, my thing. No, no, I must admit, I've made, I've made similar mistakes late, late in the evening. I think my, the worst one I made was when I first, I first got to see the martyrs and I put that on at one o'clock in the morning and at three, at three o'clock I needed somebody to talk to, not just, not just the fact I couldn't get to sleep. It was like, <laughs> yes. I need to discuss this. There's too much going <laughs> in my head. <laughs> yeah, but my wife and I put on, uh, which we're late to this party, but we put on It Follows uh, the other night and we just, we loved it, but it also left us just scared, you know, at the end. I was like, wow, that was intense. Like, uh, yeah. I, actually, just to just, just, just pick it up, how did you, that, that film did something that I think that, that was really clever within the provenance of it, whereby it got you as the audience to watch not what's in the foreground, which is a really unique feeling watching a film. Yeah, that film did so many clever things. I mean, I love when, like, a director will just, uh, director, writer will just come out of nowhere and you're like, wow, this guy has a whole voice that's, but I, one of my favorite things is how the movie just felt kind of out of time. It felt both old and new. Mm. Uh, it felt both seventies and a little bit in the future, you know, cause like, why did it, why did everything, why were all the cars from the, you know, late seventies, early eighties. And yet that girl had that kind of, uh, clamshell, you know, iPad thing. It was just amazing. I loved, um, I had to research that a bit, and I just saw an interview with that guy saying, yeah, I actually thought it would feel more like a nightmare if you couldn't place it. I'm like, that's just so brilliant. So, so when, you, when you were casting your movie, how did, you, how did that all come into place? What was, was, did you have a kind of set list of people? Did the script go out? Um, script, no, the script didn't go out, and I've, uh, I haven't used a casting director in years. I kind of just like to cast from friends or friends of friends. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of... Uh, I just believe a bit that the right person will kind of find their way that we will meet in some point. And uh, uh, I mentioned the male lead of Ryan, uh, who I was looking for, kind of a blue-blooded, you know, handsome, you know, straight-laced. Uh, uh, and my buddy Perry Lang, a director, was like, you've got to meet Michael Cassidy. I've been telling you you guys would get along for years. So then I finally did. We had coffee, and I was like, wow, this is the guy. And then mentioned to Michael, like, oh, I still don't know who our dev is going to be. And so we, we had about a, a very short list, three or four people that we, we met these uh, gals and had coffee with them. And then as soon as we met Maria Thayer and had like a three-hour coffee where we just spent most of the time laughing, I was like, okay, I think she's, she's definitely the person. Uh, she was the one. And then Ray Wise is someone, I, I think this is the 18th time we've worked together. Uh, Chris Marquette uh, is in the cast, and he was my lead in Infestation. Course, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, fr friends mostly. Uh, like with my crew, I kind of like to just uh, find people I trust and make it more of a family. 
for those for those people who don't necessarily who are, who are, who are fans of film rather than working film what what from a director's point of view and maybe even the producer's point of view what is it about this that sort of working with the familiar rather than always bringing in new when you're making a film especially obviously like you when you're doing something that's independent like you've done here yeah, I think there's a lot to it. Um, I mean, first off, if you're only paying people, you know, kind of peanuts, you can call them as a friend and be like, look, you're worth so much more than this, but how about you take this very low daily rate and then we all kind of, you own part of the movie, we all do. You know, that's kind of how I structured it. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also, um, you know, a lot has been said about the shorthand on set. You know, it's like, um, you know, now... Uh, this is my third feature with Tom Ackerman, who uh, shot this movie. He also shot Anchorman and Beetlejuice back in the day. And I feel like we mostly just get together and talk about in the morning, you know, hey, where did you know, I got you a double espresso. Oh, this is, you know, was this from that same place? We, we end up talking about <laughs> things. That are, and then, like, of course, the camera and everything else, you know, he knows exactly what he, he knows what he's doing. Um, so it's really just, uh, I find the more I direct, uh, the I, the the less I say, um, mm. I kind of just it's more about spending time uh, with other people that I trust their skill set and I know they're going to deliver. And if if things need to be tweaked or talked about, of course uh, we talk. But um, yeah, and trust, I guess, just feeling really comfortable. You know, the way we all feel comfortable. Uh, hopefully, when we you know get home with our families or with our friends, is just. Uh, mm. Comfortability, and I think in that comfortability, if you're not worried about projecting a certain image on set, like, oh my god, I'm working with uh, whatever, you know, Hugh Jackman, I've got to seem like I know what the hell I'm doing, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I think that can just take away from actually having some good ideas. Uh, so, and what, uh, what, what kind of, um, what kind of director are you when you're working with your, uh, with your actors? Are you, are you clear about, are you like crystal clear when you're saying what we're going to do, or are you, seeing what they want to do with, with the scene before before you start to have input? Or is yeah, I absolutely will see what they want to do first. Um, well, I learned this thing, I, I don't know if I read it somewhere, but I, I if I work with someone new, I'll pull them aside and say, how do you like to be directed? Okay. Uh, and a lot of times, if they're a more seasoned actor, they'll be like, yeah, let me just take a crack at it, and then uh, if it needs to be tweaked, let me know. Great. You know, that's my favorite. Because I think the bane of you know, many actors is that some director wanting to earn their paycheck or their title will pull them aside and just talk to their ear off for 20 minutes mm. and, like, uh, and get all into the psychology of a character that actually doesn't exist, uh, you know, or, uh, or, you know, what, what would be worse is like line read, Hey, or give them a roadmap or like roadmap directing. I call it where it's like, when you come in the room, you're really shocked at first, but then you think it's kind of funny, but then you, I mean, that's terrible. It's like, so, <laughs> uh, so it's mostly like, um, yeah, saying very, saying very little. And if I have to say something, um, making it enjoyable, for instance, uh, like I have two children right now and if, when you need a, when you need kids to get out of the sandbox so that you can actually go to meet someone because you're already running five minutes late, you don't say, get out now, put your clothes on, because they will just dally and kind of like, eh, you know, kick the sand, take their time. But if you're like, hey, you know, the uh, we're being invaded by aliens, and look, you look up there, you can see their ships, we've got to run inside and get our stuff on. You know, if you make it fun, you'll get yeah, a yeah, lot. Yeah. yeah, so try and engage. If I have to say something, even if I look at my watch and as the, my producer brain says, oh, my God, you're running out of daylight and time, 
I won't, I'll never go up to an actor and be like, dude, we got to get this. We're just, we're so up against it because I mean, that's just, no, who wants to work like that? This is not fun. So I will try to just be like, Hey, that was great. In this take, uh, maybe you have limited time or whatever. I'll just try and, I'm always in my head trying to find a more playful way to say things so that, uh, so that I don't pull an actor out of what we're doing. Yeah, no, I mean, one, one of the, one of the earlier podcasts I've done already, they, they, he, he talked about giving the actors time. And it's that idea of, and I've never thought about it this way before, but it's, it's a truism from the limited experience I've had on shorts that I've worked on where everyone's given time to set lights up, sound, makeup, hair. And then when all that's done, it's like, get the actor on now, now, get the yeah. actor on. And like, it's like, this person's got to show they're dying. And you're like, no, going, come on now, you've got to die. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. I should actually probably take that to heart and watch that a bit more because. Yeah, you tend to, uh, you know, like a, I read David Mamet's book on directing, and he was very much more like, actors are props, you know, put them where you want them to be and point the camera at them and tell them what to say. Uh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but I was like, whoa, this is, this is a very different way of looking at it. Uh, so, but, uh, but even I can be in danger of like, hey, just get up there and do your thing now, please. But um, yeah, that, giving them time is, is very smart. And it's obvious once you, when you hear it, it kind of it feels it feels like the obvious thing to do because you wouldn't say, "Come on, makeup, come on, hair." <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I try and do is if I talk to my director of photography and he's like, "Yeah, give me, I need twenty minutes to light this," uh, I want to stay close to the camera because I got that bit of advice uh, decades ago, and I think that was smart. That I think it, I think as as the director on a movie, it's just important to just literally be near the lens and the camera a lot because I just yeah. think the crew is like, Oh, that's cool. He's not just, uh, chatting up the actress at craft service or whatever. And I, and I, then I think the, and the cast likes it as well. They always know where you are, but, but I will sometimes take a couple minutes to step aside, check in with the actors in the scene and say, Hey, you know, any questions? How you doing? How you feeling? You know, um, to begin their process of, yeah, start giving them some time, starting to think about it. What was what's one of your favorite memories from shooting Night of the Living Dead? Oh, um, maybe the sub. We have a roof. We end on a roof uh, scene, and we shot fairly sequentially. So I think just uh, maybe the sun coming up. You know, that morning I was amazed with how early it came up. Uh, we were up in Maine, where I'm from originally. I'm, I'm speaking to you from Los Angeles, but I'm from Maine, and. It's fairly, uh, you know, it's a northern, one of the northernmost states. So it was, the sun started to make the horizon glow at about 3.45 in the morning, which was pretty amazing. Um, but then we, you know, got what we needed in time. Sun started to peek through and then someone had the, the forethought to go out and get a couple beers uh, and bring them in a cooler. And that was just very nice <laughs> just to have a wrap. <laughs> have a wrap beer and, and be up on a roof with an amazing view and, and feel good about what we had gotten. Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, now, let's remind people, when and where can they see your movie at Fright Fest? Yeah, Saturday, August 29th, Fright Fest, 11.15 p.m. I believe we're in, uh, I don't know if they call it a, a discovery screen or something like that. In yeah, one yeah, of the yeah, 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 that's yeah. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, it's going to be a good time. I'm excited to uh, excited to be there. Right, okay. Like, well, One last question we'd like to ask you. Let me put my teeth in first. One last question we'd like to ask everybody, because... Britflix is uh, is mainly about British filmmaking, and obviously Frightfest is a big British event. So I get to, and I like horror, so I get to uh, step outside that usual uh, remit. 
Uh, but what to get me back on message, I wanted to know what your favourite British horror movie was. I think it's got to be uh, The Wicker Man. Okay, why why would that be? Um, I don't. I mean, I guess even for someone who does play in the kind of horror comedy uh, sandbox, that movie just really, <clears throat> really chills me in a great way. Uh, I made my wife watch it a couple of years ago, and now we're both we'll quote it, and we're <laughs> we're both mm. just big fans. I don't know. It that is a scary, well done movie, and uh, you know, unfortunately, there was that. Terror. I don't know why anyone ever tried to remake that thing, uh, mm. especially with Nicolas Cage. But um, I just think it's a great, uh, yeah, just a near-perfect uh, film that will probably never, uh, and nor does it need to, be recreated. But uh, Well, I mean, you know, you know it was originally a B-movie that went out with Don't Look Now. I had read that. Well, I like Don't Look Now a lot, too. But uh, I had read that. I'd forgotten it. Um, but but as a but but it was also just I think it was something like a seventy five minute version as well. Oh wow! So the cut yeah. that you you would have watched with your wife would have included footage that was found rather than kept. The original masters got buried under a motorway in the UK. Oh my gosh! So there was a I think if I'm right, and I'm saying this, and I don't say this to I don't. It's not often I can name drop, but. Seems like you, 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 you've given as Wicker Man as your favourite. My local pop-up cinema in East London had a screening of Wicker Man for, as part of our summer programme. And Robin Hardy asked to come and do a Q. He asked if he could come and do a Q and A. Oh wow! So, so I watched Wicker Man sat next to Robin Hardy while he told me, like whispered in my ear, what was what he did on that shot and what he did on this shot. It was the most surreal experience. If I, if I could take my 25-year-old self to one side, he'd have told me to piss off if that was ever going to happen. <laughs> but, um, but it did. And he, he was talking about... It. Basically, what happened was they did a tour of America with the movie when it first came... With the, with the longer cut in the US before yeah. it was the B movie, I think. I think this is right. And when they were looking to do the... Um, re-edit it to make the feature version as we know it now. I think in a San Francisco cinema, they found a... They found some reels of it that had only ever been played three times. Oh my and it's, god! Wow. It's and that saved the movie. So they basically uh, they found those uh, near perfect prints. Yeah. Uh, uh, wow, that is amazing. So, and and and, and you'd also be glad to know that the Wicker Man scene. If if I if I do if I just do it already right on the top of my head, I think Wicker Man's been the most popular choice so far as well. Is it really with the with people I've had on the podcast? Yeah, it's sort of. Oh. I think it's. It's probably on balance, and I'm only—I th- haven't, I haven't made a score or anything. It's—it's it's been Descent or The Wicker Man seems to be the two. Oh yeah, Descent's pretty great too. I mean, when I started, when you first, when we first started the podcast, I thought I would definitely say Shaun of the Dead, which I adore as well. But uh, yeah, then it, when you asked, I was like, wait a minute, I—I I tell, I make people watch Wicker Man, and I'll sit there with them and um, enjoy them. People saying it for the first time, but uh, yeah, so I—that I, had slipped my mind until you asked. No, and I think I think the, the thing about Wicker Man is that it's such an elegant movie, and like you say, it's got all these other elements to it that make it that don't make it a pure horror film, and it, and it sort of defies genre, doesn't it? If you, if you think of the time it was made, it really does. Uh, and uh, you know, the performances are really I don't know. There's I still have not. I mean, I think that's why I love it. I just have not figured it out. It's a, it's a, it's a cautionary tale. Um, about life in there, but I'm not. It keeps changing every time I see it. Well, he gave, he gave a, the Q and A. He gave a great a great story about when it showed in Southern States of America. Um, oh yeah, let's hear it. 
and it went down. He said it went down a storm because they read the movie as being this is the story of the ultimate martyr, in the sense that he was willing to die with his beliefs. He wasn't going to denounce God. Yes, which has really freaked me out because I've always read it as an anti-religion movie. I never thought of it could be read as a pro-religion movie, but when you put it that way, it's true. He, he yeah. doesn't. He doesn't say God is a bastard or down with Jesus. He goes and dies in silence, doesn't he? Sort of praying to God, you know, with some praying to God. That's right. Yeah, yeah. which is mad to think of. I, I'd have thought it would have angered people, you know, in the kind of you know the kind of the, the kind of Bible Belt and stuff. But but no, it, it's turned out to be the quite the heroic film. And isn't there something? Uh, I forget about this until I watch it. But isn't there something kind of odd where we're meant to? We're meant to think that he's a virgin of some kind. Yeah, or... yeah, no, no, no. He's definitely, he's definitely a virgin as a character. I think. Yeah, that's a li- that strange credulity a bit, just given his age. But maybe not. I mean, who know, who knows? But it's yeah. I remember uh, the first time I saw it, being like, "Well, that's an odd twist." But um, yeah, his performance is so fabulous in that. Yeah, well, it was, and it was also it was unfortunate. It was unfortunate when we showed it was the week that Christopher Lee passed away. So oh, I was, yeah, I was just going to mention him as well. Yes. So it became, it became quite the poignant event. And, yes. uh, and then Robin obviously gave us some, some memories of it. And, and you know, I, mean, I don't know if you know, it was, Wicker Man was always Christopher Lee's favourite movie. That he had was to, it he, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the favourite. Because it, cause it was so different from most roles he, he got, he got offered. Yeah. And he uh, feels like he's kind of at the height of his powers in that, at that point in his life or. Yeah, because you can, if you watch the performance, you can see, you can see maybe, you know, if you, if you go pound for pound, Edward Woodward is a better actor in in yeah. a technical sense, but Christopher Lee, he's just got the presence, hasn't he? He's he's, he's a he's a cinema man. He's he could, he he just comes off the screen when you see him. Yeah, and he that whole scene of them uh, getting together is you know, Christopher Lee is almost not killing him with kindness but there's not i love the villain that is kind of smiling through everything and just he's so self-assured it's terrifying it's it's, it's actually my screensaver that moment when he's dancing around on the on the on the, the cliff top as it were nice. <laughs> and everything i mean even the the parade and those masks uh just very unsettling no it is it's a fantastic movie. so a good choice count so one last time let's remind people when they can see uh night of the living dead yeah, Night of the Living Dead screens uh, August 29th, 11.15 p.m. at the View Cinema in, I'm going to mispronounce it, is it Le- Leicester Square? Leicester Square? Leicester Square, second time you got it. Leicester, Leicester Square. Square. Yeah, we like, uh, to, we like to put letters in that make it confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now, okay. do, do, you, do you have, any, do you have any, any official release date plans that you can share with us at this, at this time? Yeah, yeah, we're still, uh, we're in contract with, uh, I think, I think I, I, if all, all works out, we'll be on VOD uh, in the UK and Ireland um, right, a few days before Halloween this year. Fantastic, fantastic. So for those people who are listening that might not be going to Fright Fest, there'll be ample opportunities to see the movie later this year. Yeah, hopefully you will hear about it, because I think it's going to be on a, on a good platform with a good distributor. Magic, magic. Well, look, thank you very much for taking time to come on the Britflix podcast. Thank you, Stuart. It was really fun. Indeed, indeed. And good luck with your screening. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. 
or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.